Their names are part of Americana. Al Capone, Arnold Rothstein, Johnny Florio, the great bootleggers of the jazz age. But have you ever wondered where they got their boots? There was a man in Cincinnati at the beginning of Prohibition who cornered the market on bourbon. He shipped it all over the country, and his booze supplied most of the speakeasies in major cities. He was called the Bourbon King, King of the Bootleggers. His name was George Remus, and his story is as wild and colorful as the Jazz Age itself. So mix yourself a George Remus sidecar and sit back for a tale of bootlegging, lies, adultery, and murder, corruption that reached all the way into the White House. In 1882, a six-year-old boy arrived in New York with his parents on a ship from Germany. The family eventually made their way to Chicago. And George was one of those rare kids who not only had street smarts, because in those days, in Chicago, a German immigrant had to be able to fight to defend himself. But he was also book smart. He excelled in school, but had to drop out when he was 14 to help support the family. He went to work in his uncle's drugstore, and when he turned 19, he lied about his age so he could take the state pharmacist's exam. He passed, and two years later, he had saved enough money to buy the store. He married a neighborhood girl called Lillian Clough, and they started a family. Remus, and by the way, he always referred to himself in the third person, Remus is hungry. Remus is the best. He was in a hurry to get ahead. He bought another drug store and soon began developing his own brand of products, all named after himself, of course. Remus liver pills. Remus pain celery compound. Remus pinkum compound. He formed the Remus Pharmaceutical Company and began selling his pills all over the country. And he began buying real estate all over Chicago. He was becoming very successful and very wealthy. But he wanted more. He thought about becoming a doctor, but that really didn't interest him. It was too much like being a pharmacist but he was intrigued by the law. He enrolled in law school and graduated after 18 months. He sold his drugstores and opened a law office on the North Shore in Chicago. He began by representing workers and labor unions. His mentor was Clarence Darrow, one of the most famous lawyers in the country, an attorney who had represented such people as John Scopes in the Scopes Monkey Trial and the murderer of the Lindbergh baby, if you remember that. Darrow had a tremendous influence on Remus's decision to begin defending people who were facing the death penalty. And by 1914, George Remus was one of the most well-known and successful criminal defense attorneys in Chicago. 
When he was in a trial, especially one involving the death penalty, he used every tool in his disposal to save his clients from the gallows or the electric chair. In 1914, he took on a seemingly hopeless case, one that would actually save his own life in a couple of decades. A hotel manager and a doctor burst into a room and found a man in a robe covered with blood trying to cut his own throat. They stopped him and then noticed a woman lying on the bed. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear. The man, who turned out to be her husband, claimed that she had committed suicide. It turned out that both the man and the woman were from the cream of Chicago society. It seemed like an open and shut case. Of course, the husband was guilty. Enter Remus for the defense. Remus knew there was no way to prove the husband's innocence. He was guilty, and he would hang. Unless, unless, the woman, Remus told the jury, had been having an affair. The husband was crushed. He loved his wife. Her infidelity drove him insane, temporarily. The jury convicted him, but they only sentenced him to 15 years, not death. Remus's fame as an attorney grew with that case. He eventually began an affair with a divorcee named Imogene Holmes. By 1918, Remus moved in with her, deserting his own wife and young daughter. Lillian eventually divorced him, and he married Imogene. He seemed to have it all. A new wife, a successful law practice, and lots of money. But as always, it wasn't enough. But Remus had a plan. Congress passed the Volstead Act in 1919, which made the sale and possession of alcoholic beverages illegal. Sort of. Alcohol could still be sold for certain purposes, such as making fuel, and dye, and cleansers, and medicine. Remus the lawyer saw a loophole, one that Remus the pharmacist could take advantage of. There was still plenty of good bourbon in the country, but to sell it, one needed a whiskey certificate, which certified that it would only be used for medicinal purposes. Well, a pharmacist could certainly verify that. So Remus went to Kentucky and bought some of the recently closed distilleries and all their inventory, including their certificates. Before long, the booze, good booze, was flowing from Cincinnati to Chicago, to Milwaukee, to Kansas City, to New York. Remus saw himself as the Rockefeller of the bootleggers. He wanted to control the entire process from production, to warehousing, to transportation, to distribution. But there was one problem. Unlike oil, booze was illegal. Remus needed protection. He could bribe local officials and cops and prohibition agents, but he needed insurance, so he went straight to the top. He paid $60,000 to Henry Dougherty, 
the Attorney General of the United States who assured him that he would never spend a day in jail. Even if he was arrested, Dougherty said, he'd make sure that Remus was never prosecuted. And even if he was prosecuted, Dougherty assured him, he'd never be convicted. But even if he was convicted, Dougherty would make sure that his good friend, President Warren Harding, would pardon him. It was foolproof. Except, President Harding had the effrontery to die. Then, without the protection of the President, Dougherty found himself indicted for corruption, and it was open season on George Remus. The head of the Justice Department's prohibition enforcement was Mabel Walker Willebrandt. She had her sights set on Remus and assigned one of her top undercover agents, Frank Dodge, of the famous Dodge Automotive Dynasty, to nail him. And nail him they did. Remus was arrested and sentenced to 18 months in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. But Frank Dodge nailed someone else besides George Remus. He nailed his wife, Imogene. She provided a lot of information to Dodge, and Dodge provided her with certain comforts while her husband was in prison. They also spent a lot of Remus's money. Word got to the Bourbon King about his wife's hanky-panky. She filed for divorce while he was behind bars. When he got out, the divorce trial was set. Then, one day, in the fall of 1927, Remus saw his wife and stepdaughter get into a taxi. He ordered his driver to follow them and run them off the road. Imogene saw him and started to run. He chased her, grabbed her by the arm, and in broad daylight shot her in the stomach. She died on the operating table. Remus walked into a police station and turned himself in, telling the officer on duty, I shot my wife. The district attorney was a member of the most prominent family in Cincinnati. His name was Charles Taft. His father was the former President of the United States and the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft. It looked like an open and shut case, and Charlie Taft announced he would seek the death penalty. But as always, Remus had a plan. Remember the Wharton murder case from 1914? It would be his ticket out. From the moment he confessed, he told anyone who would listen that his wife's unfaithfulness with the corrupt federal agent Frank Dodge had driven him crazy. Remus represented himself at trial. At various times, he seemed like his old self, the best criminal defense and attorney in Cincinnati. At other times, he seemed like a helpless defendant, sobbing at the defense table when a witness testified that Dodge and Imogene had offered him $15,000 to kill Remus. There were those in the courtroom who never forgot the closing argument. Remus faced the jury and said, I stand before you as George Remus, the attorney. I sit before you, he said, pointing to the empty chair as George Remus, the defendant. For two days, the jurors listened and sometimes wept as he told them of his pain, his anger, his anguish. It took them all of 19 minutes to come back with a verdict of not guilty.
All in all, George Remus made over $350 million in current day currency, though some say it may have been as high as $2.9 billion from his Bourbon Empire. Some people think he was actually the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. This story may sum up George Remus. The day after he collapsed in the courtroom, after hearing about his wife and her lover's plan to murder him, he was carried out, sobbing and stumbling by a couple of bailiffs. As soon as he got in the hallway, though, he stopped crying, looked up at a young bailiff and winked. How am I doing, kid? Thanks, Dad. That is such a good story. That one is so crazy and not a lot of people know about it. I, I hadn't heard that whole story until until we shared this uh, script together. And we have a little special connection to the George Remus Empire that we'll get to in a bit. But first, we have Trends of the Crime, sponsored by Style a la Mode. This is the part of the podcast where I tell you about what the characters in our true crime story likely would have worn at the time of the crime. First, we have George Remus. Remus's busy job of bootlegging caused him to need a professional suit that was relaxing enough to do business in. He can be seen in photos wearing a stiff bowler hat with his lounge suit. By the 1920s, men were able to purchase ready-to-wear suits, but they were still expected to get them tailored professionally to fit perfectly. Imogene Remus, uh, her fashion choices were clearly inspired by the early works of Coco Chanel. Chanel was known for her boyish figure. She capitalized on her own body type by creating clothes that were comfortable and easy to wear. Chanel's signature pieces were relaxed Chanel suits in jersey and tweed, still a classic look today that you can see on the runways of Fashion Week, her streamlined shift chemises, the LBD or little black dress, costume jewelry, wide bottom trousers, and signature accessories. Now, I think we could charitably describe Imogene Remus as curvy. And as we discussed last week, the curvy figure was not in fashion at this time. So that's probably why Imogene wore the more relaxed clothes of Coco Chanel so that she would look more like the all hip and bones that we discussed in our previous episode. She was likely a fan of Chanel's staple range of pullovers and loose or cardigan jackets, um, short skirts, and simple blouses. And to go along with these cardigans, net cloche hats were a fabulous look. Something interesting that you'll think is funny, Dad, about Coco Chanel. How do you think that she paid for all of her fashion houses at the beginning of her career? I wouldn't want to guess this being a family podcast. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> well, Chanel was a beautiful lady, young lady. She had rich businessmen offering to pay for her, uh, to pay for her fashion houses and her career. So she had what we might call today sugar daddies. Ah. I don't know if there were any transactions made, but she did have some sugar daddies who, who paid for her fashion houses. So... Well, I do hope they got their money's worth. <laughs> well, she made a lot of money, so. Well, what about uh, what about other girls? What were they wearing, the, the younger set at this time? 
Yes, so the Flapper Girls, is that who you're referring That's to? That's exactly who I'm referring to. Let's go. Do you remember, Dad, when I was a Flapper Girl for Halloween? Yes, I do. I had a little sequin dress with the with a feather boa and a little hat. I kind of remember that, but that was around the time all the dads in the neighborhood would follow you kids around trick-or-treating while we were dragging a wagon with a beer keg in it. So you probably, your memory is a little it's fuzzy, yes. fuzzy for it that. It's fuzzy. Gotcha. Well, that was probably my favorite Halloween costume. I was about eight years old, but anywho, Remus was definitely around the famous Roaring Twenties Flapper Girls with all of the time he spent at the speakeasies. Hemlines during this time were around mid-calf for flapper dresses. French designer Jean Patou designed a line of evening gowns inspired by the taste of dancing during that period. These gowns had beaded fringes and feathers attached to thin crepes and georgettes that swayed to the rhythm of the Charleston and Black Bottom. The details on these dresses were often used in art deco patterns. Everything glittered in fashion during this period. You could find tiaras, bandeaus, and detachable heels decorated with real diamonds or rhinestones. Flapper Girls also embraced modern hygiene products from safety razors to new deodorants to false eyelashes. So they were the early adopters of what we use every day today. I see. Not so much false eyelashes. I don't use false eyelashes, but some people do. That's a whole industry now. Did you know that? I did not. Yep. Right, well, now we're going to discuss the crime, but first, I want to know why you chose a Remus sidecar today. Well, I chose a, a Remus sidecar, uh, first of all, because uh, a sidecar is a, it's a take on an old-fashioned, which would have been a, a good bourbon drink in, uh, in fashion at that time. Uh, a sidecar originally was made with uh, either orange juice or lemon juice and brandy. Uh, but as, uh, as Prohibition took over and those liquors became harder to get, they were often substituted with bourbon. Now, I call it a Remus sidecar because um, there is now a bourbon that is actually called George Remus bourbon. Very, very good. It's, it's, last, uh, its last pouring received a rating of 96 in Whiskey Advocate. And also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you and I have a... Uh, have a connection with the, the distillers of Remus Bourbon. Your mother worked for that company. It's a, uh, a company out of Lawrenceburg, Indiana called MGP Distillers, and that's who produces George Remus Bourbon. And I think it's just a, it's, it's a fantastic drink. So uh, I made the bourbon or the sidecar with about two ounces of George Remus Bourbon as the base spirit. And um, rather than orange juice, I made it with tangerine juice just a little bit of lemon to, uh, to add some tartness, and um, about five milliliters of, of simple syrup or sugar. Uh, very tasty. Did you enjoy it? It was delish. One well, of my favorites. Well, that's why, that's why I named it the Remus Sidecar because of that, uh, that very good Remus bourbon. Yes, and the first drink I had with, Re with George Remus bourbon was a bourbon and Diet Coke, and even that was amazing that simple drink with the with the Remus, not sponsored by the way. We just really like this George Remus bourbon. That's so right. my mom worked there for about ten years. She said, and uh, I remember when they released it and we tried it, and it was 
it was yummy. So. <laughs> and and as you said, we we have no financial connection with them. They are producing a a fourteen year fourteen year old bottled in bond bourbon that honors the hundredth anniversary of the Volstead Act. I think it came out a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottle looks cool too. We saw a picture earlier today. Right, kind of a decanter style bottle. Uh, Two hundred dollars a bottle. So. Um, you know, if someone from MGP is listening and they'd like to send us one, we'll certainly take we'll it take. And, and review it on our next podcast. Won't sure we? will. Sure will. We think well, you liked my mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. They liked them. They liked her. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Boardwalk Empire is a show that you watched, Dad. I remember I was a little young. Mom didn't want me to watch it, but it was on HBO. So I've still never seen it, but I think I'm going to watch it now. Remus was portrayed on Boardwalk Empire by Glenn Fleshler, who is in Joker, the the new, uh, what's his name? Joaquin Phoenix version of the Joker. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Billions, which I've never seen, but I did see Joker. Great movie. Uh, Do you have any memories of Remus in this show? I I do. Boardwalk Empire was set in Atlantic City, um, and uh, the main character was based on the Atlantic City uh, boss, and uh, Remus showed up in one scene. He was really played for comic relief. He was in a hotel, and and Remus, um, Remus was rather rotund, and they showed him uh, at a hotel that was being raided by the by the prohees, uh, the prohibition agents, and uh, his big scene was running down the hotel in his underwear. I did watch that on YouTube. It was pretty funny. So. I, I look forward to watching that show now that I'm old enough to see yes. it. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. It's on HBO Max, so I'm going to watch that. Um, and I don't know if you guys caught the answer to our trivia question that we posed in our last episode, but Jay Gatsby is the literary figure from The Great Gatsby that George Remus is rumored to be based off of. That's true. Now, it's never been proven. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are rumors that there's a, a photograph somewhere that shows uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Remus together in a bar in Florida. No one's ever been able to produce it. But uh, uh, Remus is one of one of a few of, of the Prohibition area bootleggers that uh, people believe may be uh, Fitzgerald-based Jay Gatsby on. There's a lot of compelling evidence of why this rumor could very well be true. Uh, I saw that Remus had a mansion in Price Hill, which is a neighborhood in Cincinnati, and he decorated it with rare art and exotic plants. He installed a massive indoor pool for his daughter for $125,000, which is $1.8 million today. Uh, And he threw lavish galas and events, and he would give gifts and, uh, like, for example, he would put jewelry under each dinner plate or keys to a new car under each dinner plate. What does that remind you of, Dad? Well, kind of reminds me of Oprah. <laughs> you get a car. You get a car. We all get a car. I, w- I wish I could have been invited to one of uh, one of Gatsby's or one of uh, one of George Remus's parties. I know, right? So you would think he'd be a party animal, right? You you think so? But you'd be wrong. He was very introverted. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke, and he would often retreat to his personal library during parties instead of partying with his guests. Yeah, he did see himself as an intellectual, a very Mm -hmm. well-read intellectual. 
Why do you think he didn't want to attend his own parties? Well, I'm again, if he was an introvert and all of all of this debauchery is going on, he probably just felt more comfortable, you know, being apart from it. I, I think he liked the adulation. I was going to say, why do you think he had the parties? Then? Oh, I, I think uh, Imogene was a great inspiration there. Mm. Um, he built the house for her. Uh, she was very social, had been all of her life, so I think this was really to, uh, to please her. Okay, interesting. One thing, of course, Remus had to do uh, to thrive and even to survive, he had to make sure that, that his distilleries were protected, he had to make sure that uh, his distribution points were secure, and uh, my understanding is he had a, almost a little fortified community outside of Cincinnati called Death Valley Farm. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Uh, I I saw on, again, a very reliable internet source, Wikipedia, that uh, his Death Valley Farm in Westwood, he purchased from George Garum? George Garum, yes. And the outside world thought it was only accessible by dirt road, but the actual distillery was located at a different address. Is that right? Is that a different address? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Uh, the alcohol was distilled in the attic of the house, then dumbwaitered below. A trap door was located in the basement, which was the entrance to a tunnel about 50 to 100 feet long and six feet under the ground. The bootleggers would push the products along the tunnel to a waiting car, usually making it safely away. It's believed to be one of the only locations never busted in the Cincinnati area, in 1920, a raid by hijackers took place, but Remus's armed guards, led by John Garum, fired heavy volleys at the hijackers, and after a short fight, the wounded attackers left. And from what I read, it was called Death Valley because of all the guards, and it, if you crossed, it looked like you would die, because they were very armed. Right. My understanding is there were even things that looked kind of like uh, guard towers. You might see at a prison mm-hmm. or an army base where... Uh, they'd be they'd be manned 24 hours a day with searchlights. Um, I mean, this wasn't a secret location, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of Remus's rivals knew exactly where he was. And and if he didn't have the armed guards, uh, they they would have been able to break in and steal his booze. So mm-hmm. uh, there were there were several uh, high profile gunfights fought around there, but because of because of Remus's uh, payments. To the authorities, I don't believe there were ever any arrests or anything, or even investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the people who uh, who were killed in these gunfights usually found themselves at the bottom of a river. <laughs> does this remind you of The Sopranos at all, Dad? Another yeah, show you like? It does. It does. <laughs> Another one I need to watch now that I'm old enough. Mom didn't watch, let me watch that either, but. And she didn't let you watch South Park either. Right. <laughs> I'm okay with that one, though. I don't need to go back and watch that. Oh, my God. They killed Kenny. I did see the Boy Meets World episode where they spoofed that, though. But anyway, uh, I do want to talk about the briberies. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, it's amazing how many people you find out later ended up getting away with all this stuff just because they had money. So that's crazy. Right. We talked about how much money uh, Remus made. From his operations and some people think he probably had to pay 50% of those profits oh my god uh, to to bribe the authorities and it would be everyone from 
the, the, the cops on the beat to turn the turn their head when the trucks went driving by to uh, lawyers, prosecutors, so charges wouldn't be filed to judges to, to make sure well if the, if the uh, cases were filed, they'd be dismissed. He would uh, if they ever got to trial, they would bribe and threaten jurors. Uh, governors were on the payroll. Oh my gosh. And, and as I said in the um, in the podcast itself, the Attorney General of the United States was, was paid $60,000 for his promise that, hey, even if the worst happens, the president, Warren Harding, will mm-hmm. pardon you. Yep. Uh, and, of course, Warren Harding died. <laughs> so, um, so there went that plan. Calvin Coolidge didn't feel that he had to honor uh, his predecessor's <laughs> promise. But there were some people that just couldn't be bribed. Uh-huh. Um, the head of the Indiana State Police was offered a lot of money. Turned it down. The uh, the main government attorney in charge of prohibition enforcement, uh, Mabel Wildebrand, uh, she was approached and threw him out of her office. So it's not everyone was corrupt, but yeah. there were enough a to, lot of... to turn the blind to turn a blind eye. Uh, that reminds me of um, we just watched Ozark. I know you're not caught up on it, Dad, but as I'm sure, I don't know if you've made it this far, but I'm sure you know that they have to bribe people oh yeah uh sheriffs and things and it's just crazy how corrupt people can be when they see a large amount of money so very interesting i also found some interesting things about remus in prison right because after uh after president harding died and he was actually finally charged and and uh sent to prison he was charged with three thousand violations of the volstead act and was sentenced to two years in prison in atlanta at yep. a federal penitentiary. So what, what happened down there? Well, this is pretty funny. He threw a private bash in his train coach on the way to Georgia. And in prison, he got to eat his meals at the prison chaplain's residence. His cell was decorated with flowers, and he was waited on by servants. Mm. How mm. nice. Sounds pretty nice. No responsibilities. Get to be waited on. I wonder if that's uh, what's going to happen to Lori Laughlin. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> or if Martha Stewart, you know. Uh, on I just keep bringing up other shows today. This is so, like, theatrical, this whole story. And Orange is the New Black, they did a play on Martha Stewart in prison. Mm-hmm. But it was a different famous chef. And she got her own private cell. And it was mm-hmm. very much like mm-hmm. this. So very funny. Uh, while Remus was in prison, he did write letters to... Imogene, mm-hmm. who he had not killed yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> and uh, he had a really good way with words. Did you read any of his letters in the book that you read about Remus? I did, and and remember, he was he was uh, just an amazing attorney. Uh-huh. Um, when when I said in the podcast about uh, the jurors crying as he was giving his summation, I mean it's true. He was a very intelligent man. Very well spoken. He always had a German accent, which hmm. some people feel he kind of used to his advantage. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. When did he come? When he was young, when they came over, he right? was six. But you know, back in those days, uh, everyone had accent. Everyone, a lot of people had accents. Yeah, you, yeah. you would normally speak your your native tongue in the household. So okay, you know, it's not he, like today when you adjust to. Right. He left. He only went to school through uh, the age of fourteen. So right. Uh, I'm sure about the only time he spoke English was when he was in school mm-hmm. uh, until he you know, got out and went into the business world. 
Right. Very interesting. Well, I did find a video of Karen Abbott of Crown Publishing Group uh, reading the beginning of one of his letters to his wife. Uh, and she says that you can sense his changing attitude because he could feel that he was losing her and that she was probably drifting away from him. Um, and you can feel that urgency and desperation under his words. So I'll play its 20 seconds of this letter. It's very, very funny words in it. My only wife, how is it that you are a monkey? You are a centipede. You are a gem. You are a jewel. You are a combination of all the aforesaid in one. If I but had you this very moment, I would demonstrate all of the foregoing with a real vigor and vim unexcelled. How about it? Well... <laughs> I guess tonight I'll open a uh, a bottle of wine and uh, woo your mother with uh, calling say. her a centipede and a gem. <laughs> that should go over really well. Very interesting, isn't it? It is. Now, of course, when he was in prison, feeling his wife was was uh, drifting drifting away from her. In fact, she was. Uh, she was drifting away from him, uh, but not empty-handed. Right. Uh, she was drifting away from him with a lot of her money and also with Frank Dodge. Mm -hmm. And this, um, this obviously drove, uh, drove George Remus over the edge. I mean, he said it drove him temporarily insane. <laughs> well, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that, did, uh, that did lead to him uh, shooting his wife in broad daylight. Yep. I, I think it was less temporary madness and more... Ego had been shot, and he wasn't happy about that. I think so. I think so. A lot of powerful people I've noticed, you know, they someone dare cross them and mm. embarrass them. I think it was a lot of embarrassment. How could you do this to me sort of thing. So, But, but who knows? Only he will know. So, Well, again, Dad, I really enjoyed this story, and it's not a super common one, but it is very interesting, and... Uh, we're going to get more into Clarence Darrow next week. We mm -hmm. touched on him, but our next episode will talk a lot about Clarence Darrow and his uh, strategy as an attorney. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited for that. Uh, our trivia question for next week is, do you want to ask the question this week, Dad? Yes, next week we will be uh, considering the antics of uh, two very intelligent college students, Nathan Leopold. Richard Loeb, and the Derby question is this, which famous television detective had a case based on Leopold and Loeb? And we will pose this question on our social media, and the first person to answer correctly will win a face mask this time. How's that? I like it. I like All it. All right. Well, I enjoyed this too, Macy. I enjoyed our discussion. I enjoyed our company, and I really enjoyed the sidecar. Me too. All right, we'll see you guys next week with the bee's knees. That will be our cocktail, yes. Look for the recipe on our Instagram and our Facebook group, and can't wait. Okay. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Plus on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merchandise. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mace. 
Thank you to Alex Joaquin for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.